Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel Podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Now, 1 Corinthians. There's a pattern that we've established at the beginning of the year. I always start a book study, and it's for a few reasons. One is I try to tackle a book that I've never taught all the way through. It gets a little harder as time goes on because I've taught through a lot of them, but I've never taught through 1 Corinthians in its entirety before. And here's the second reason. I know that some of us, we we pick up the Bible and you're well-versed in it. You're a student of the scriptures. You have a habit of digging into this book. But there are a lot of us that we pick up the Bible and we want to read it. We want to understand, but we find it terribly confounding at times. We feel like we just don't know enough and don't understand enough. So this is an invitation. Wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, we're going to make our way through this book. It has 16 chapters. And we'll make our way through just a chapter at a time, but I won't be able to teach it exhaustively. There's just too much here. So it's an invitation for you to open your Bible and over the next couple of months, work your way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And here's what I love. I love this. You never read the Bible alone. One of the things that Jesus promised is this. He said, I, when I leave physically, I'm going to leave you a gift, and it's called the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And here's one of the assignments of the Holy Spirit, that he will lead us into all truth. He will tutor us, and he will teach us. So here's what I envision, is that people all over open this book, and they begin to read the book of 1 Corinthians together, and the Spirit of God is just teaching you things that I never saw, things that I didn't even understand, that God is teaching us corporately, so a chance to learn in that way. So let's talk a little bit about 1 Corinthians. I'm going to lay the groundwork for the series. And where I, when I send in my notes, they're like, you're only going to talk about the first three verses? There's 16 chapters. So we're starting really slow, okay? But we will pick up the pace, I promise you. But the reason is, is Corinth is a very, very unique church. It's a unique city. And I want to lay the groundwork about the author. Okay. The author of this book is the apostle Paul. Now he has two names and we're going to talk about that. He has the name Saul, which is his Hebrew name. And he has the word Paul, which is his Greek or Latin name. And it's written in 51 or 52 AD. We're not exactly sure, but Jesus, um, Ascended into heaven after his resurrection somewhere in the 33 AD. So the church is just under, what, 20 years old. And this is a, a dynamic city. It's a really unique city. And it's, for us to understand the city, is going to help us to open up the book. And, and we'll understand more about what's happening. So Paul pens this book. Uh, I want to show you a quick picture of where this book is re- being written from. This is Corinth right here. This is Ephesus. The Apostle Paul will travel at minimum 10,000 miles during his lifetime on foot and by boat. He's going to make a circle like this three times, maybe four, to plant churches. Now, here's Corinth. He visits this. It's going to be the first Gentile church. It's going to be, um, it's going to be history changing what happens in this church. But he is currently in Ephesus when he authors this book in 51 or 52 AD. 
So I know it looks like a short way, but this is, this is months of journey to go back. And so what we have in the book of First and Second Corinthians are letters. So as we read this, don't think that this is a theological treaty. We call it a book, but literally it is a letter that he wrote to the people, the followers of Jesus in this infantile, very young church in Corinth. And there's a lot happening that we can't grasp, okay? And in fact, one of the challenges I've had teaching Corinthians is I kind of feel like it's a jigsaw puzzle and you don't have actually have all the pieces. And here's why that is. There are at least four letters that Paul writes to the people in Corinth. Two of the letters aren't preserved. We don't have them. So we have first and second Corinthians. Let me show you how this works out. I'm gonna read a couple of scriptures from first Corinthians that tell us about these multiple letters. So in first Corinthians five, nine, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter. <laughs> we don't have that letter. <laughs> this is the first one we have. And what's happening is while Paul's in Ephesus, he keeps getting these reports that the church in Corinth is dysfunctional. Can you believe that? A dysfunctional church. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought that churches in the first century, you know, you go all the way back to the original church and they're, they're healthy and dynamic and they're focused on the right things. This is part of what we're gonna have to cover. There's divisions. There is um, ethnic tension in their church. There are people who are wealthy and people who are poor and they have friction between them. Um, at one point in one of his letters, he writes about leaders and he says, um, could you please quit choosing leaders who get into fist fights after your public services. It just doesn't work. He's gonna write about communion, right? The sacrament. He's gonna say, listen, so during communion, some of you are drinking so much wine that you're intoxicated. <laughs> and then other people who are poor don't have anything to celebrate like that. That's just not, that's not working for me. People are suing each other. I mean, it's just, it's got all this tension. Their services are chaos. In the middle, well, towards the end of the book, he's gonna write and say like, could we just have one person talk at a time instead of everybody screaming simultaneously? Like, let's work this out. So it's a helpful book. So he writes a letter before this. And then in chapter seven, he says, now concerning the matters which you wrote. So they write a letter that comes from Corinth to Ephesus. He responds. And then we'll see this in second Corinthians. Paul writes another book that we don't have. And it's called the severe letter is what historians and theologians call it. He says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know about the abundant love that I have for you. So there's another letter that Paul wrote where he just kind of lets them have it. He's like, we got to address this because even there's some morality issues that are really, really difficult in the church. So this Christmas, I was the observer of two different jug, jug, uh, jigsaw puzzles going together. I've never participated in a puzzle because I do not have the patience nor the correct medication <laughs> to be a part of any assemblance of a jigsaw puzzle. But I watched, I can observe, and they're looking, you gotta find the right pieces. And if there's a missing piece, it drives everybody nuts, right? So sometimes when we read the book of 1 Corinthians, we don't know what those other letters said. We don't know what the letter that the Corinthians sent to Paul says. So in first and second Corinthians, what we have is we have some of the answers without knowing all the problems. And some people might be a little disturbed, like, so are you saying the Bible's incomplete? No, not at all. 
we're saying that those letters obviously weren't essential or they would be included in this. But it'll help us as we try to put things together. Now, what was Corinth like? Next week, we'll talk more about Corinth. This week, we're going to focus on the author more. But let me just show you a picture of what you'd see if you went to Corinth today. It was a magnificent city. There's a whole history about it. In 146 BC, it was destroyed during the, this ultimate conflict between the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire. It was one of the last cities to hold on in the Greek Empire. Rome comes in, raises everything, destroys it. Every male is killed. All of the women and children are hauled off and become slaves. The city lies completely dormant for 102 years till Julius Caesar says, I want to build a new city, a city on the foundation of that great Greek empire and the foundation of old Corinth. So he builds the most modern, probably the most prosperous city outside of Rome in this new Corinth in 44 AD. So by the time Paul writes this letter, it is a prosperous city. It's a diverse city. It's new. It's got the latest technology because it's a city that's only about 100 years old at this point. Now, let's jump into reading just uh, the first three verses of 1 Corinthians. Okay, Let's read this together. How does Paul start the letter? Paul, called to be an apostle. By the way, notice this, what he refers to himself as called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Let's pause there for a second. This word apostle, it's not a word that we use too often in today's world. In its original meaning in the first century, it wasn't just something that signified church leadership. It meant someone was catalytic, was a pioneer, went out and started new things, tried things no one else had started before. And this is Paul, he's traveling across the planet planting churches. So he says, this isn't my idea. I'm called. There's something big and divine that I, my life was headed in a certain trajectory and God called me to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is God's destiny for me. And our brother Sosthenes. Now this guy, you can read about him in Acts chapter 18. He's actually a synagogue leader. So he's, he has a Greek name, but he's a Jewish man. And um, he's going to get beat up in Acts chapter 18 for be, converting to following Jesus. Now he partners with Paul in writing this letter. To the church of God in Corinth, to those, I love what he does here, sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. The reason he's writing this letter is because the church has been naughty. But he does not begin the letter saying to that naughty group of people across the Aegean Sea from me in Corinth. What does he say? He says to those who are sanctified. Meaning this, he's saying, I know what you're doing. I know there's chaos in your church, but here's what you need to remember about yourself. And for anybody in the room, anybody watching, anybody who's wondering, how does God feel about me? It's one of these ultimate questions that we ask. Does God love me? Have I been good enough? All of this. Here's what Paul reminds them of. You're sanctified, meaning this. What Jesus did through his life, death, burial, and resurrection covers human beings. And to be sanctified is this religious word, which means you're set apart and you're holy. That when God looks down, he does not see what you did yesterday. 
he sees that you are forgiven, that you are in Christ Jesus. So he starts off reminding them of the power of Jesus Christ, how it changes human history forever. Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I could do. I'd like us to look at the making of Paul. Here's a guy that goes from being Saul to becoming Paul. How does that happen? How does he go from Saul, the ultimate Jew, to Paul, the planter of a non-Jewish church? So a few things we know about Paul is this. He was um, about as well-educated as a person could be in the first century. He was educated under a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi by the name of Gamaliel, who was the leading mind in the first century. Saul, if he were in today's world, would hold multiple PhDs. He was as Jewish as you can become. He understood the Old Testament, okay, the, the books written before the life of Jesus, backwards and forwards. He definitely had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. He's part of this leading uh, elite religious class. But he has an experience that changes his life. Here's where we pick up on Saul in um, the book of Acts. This is our, our first introduction to him. Church is just, uh, 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 just years old. And we read this in Acts 8.3. Saul was ravaging the church. This word ravaging, it's the Greek word that's used when uh, like, like a wolf attacks a lamb. Just tearing it apart. Just destroying. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this is our first introduction to Saul or Paul. This is a guy that is vehemently opposed to Jesus. So Saul was raised as a good Jewish person and the hope of every Jewish person was that one day God would send what they called the Messiah or the promised one. And Saul is deeply offended because there are these certain Jewish people who've decided that a man named Yeshua or Jesus was this Messiah. And this is unthinkable to Saul. Unthinkable. Because as a student of the Old Testament, he understands that when the Messiah would come, the Messiah would bring deliverance. The Messiah would bring dignity to the Jewish people. And these new followers of Jesus are saying, no, the Messiah came and he died on a cross. He experienced capital punishment from the Roman government. He died this humiliating death on the cross. And what God was doing on planet earth was not pushing back the Roman occupation, but he was changing another kingdom. He was bringing life to lost people. And Saul can't conceive that this would be true. He feels like this is a, a twisted sect of Judaism that he is responsible for stamping out. And so he's pursuing Christians, trying to eliminate the followers of Jesus. Now we read in chapter nine, verse, 15, uh, nine, verse one, this continues, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. Synagogues are local churches. Two-thirds of Jews live outside of Israel during the first century. They've been expelled because of all different tr troubles. And so they congregate in the Roman Empire. Whenever you have 12 Jewish men, you can start a synagogue. So they're little local churches. So that if he found any belonging to the way, interesting, 
Christians weren't called Christians until later in a city called Antioch. They're just called followers of the way. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, okay, so here he goes. He wants to ravage more Christians. He wants to eliminate the followers of Jesus. He approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, Jesus calls him by his Hebrew name. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise. I'll stop here for just a moment. But rise. Saul had gotten everything in his life wrong. He's as earnest as they come. But he was misdirected. He had taken these humble followers of Jesus, executed some, imprisoned many. Do you think that Jesus had every right to say something like this? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, and now you're going to get it. It makes sense to me. Here's like the story of grace boiled down into one word. Saul, you've got it entirely wrong, but rise, but rise. I just, I want to say to anybody who needs this right now, and I have a sense there are some of us, whatever happened in your past, no matter how deep and tragic the mistake is, here's what Jesus says to you, but rise, but rise. There's a future, there's a hope, there's forgiveness. There's an opportunity to be involved in things that you never dreamed possible. Don't stay there, rise. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. So Saul, we didn't read this, but he's blinded. He he literally can't see. He's led into the city. And God shows up to a guy named Ananias. We don't know anything about Ananias. It's just the one time he appears in the Bible. God says to Ananias, hey, Ananias, I need you to do something. Ananias says, well, what is it? He says, hey, Saul's here in town. I need you to go pray for him. And Ananias says to God, that's a terrible idea. Like, that's the guy that puts all my friends in prison. That's the guy, like, why would I pray for him? And this is what God says to Ananias. This is just amazing. But the Lord said to him, said to Ananias, go, for he saw is a chosen instrument, chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the, this is, in the Jewish world, this was unthinkable. You never talked to someone who wasn't a Jew. If you had to interact in business with someone who wasn't Jewish, you had to go through a whole ceremonial washing process because you were contaminated by a non-Jewish person. He says, he is my instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. All those non-Jewish pollutants out there and kings and the children of Israel. The children of Israel are third on the list. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I'll tell you what, Paul figured out how much he was going to suffer. He has this magnificent calling. Man, this guy is going to suffer. He's going to spend more time in prison. He's going to be beaten more. They're going to attempt to execute him numerous, numerous times. 
He's going to suffer, but he's going to fulfill this. So what does Saul do? I won't read these texts, but Saul goes immediately to the followers of Jesus in Damascus. Ananias prays for him. His eyes are open. People in Damascus are, whoa. Hey, you're the guy that like is killing our friends? Like, no thanks. So he's rejected by the early church in Damascus. He then goes to Jerusalem, the, the kind of the hub of this new Christian church. And they're like, no, 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 you're an Ill infiltrator. You're just trying to get into our church so that you can arrest more of us. So he's rejected by, the, by the, the church. So then he goes back to his hometown and he disappears for 14 years. Total obscurity. He had this magnificent encounter with Jesus. He had this statement spoken over him that he would be a chosen instrument to reach Gentiles, kings, and Jews. But for 14 years, nothing. He, he references in one of his letters that during those 14 years, he was taught by Jesus. So there's 14 years of growth and development. Then 14 years after all this happens, this guy named Barnabas. Barnabas says, hey, remember Saul and he goes and finds him and begins to sponsor him and eventually this church in Antioch they pray for Saul and Barnabas and they send them out to plant churches and here's what they do together they travel they go to every city you can imagine in the Roman Empire and what do they do they go to the synagogue and they talk to Jewish people about Jesus and a few believe and they're rejected and their lives are threatened and they're either imprisoned or they have to run out of town. And they do that for six years. Six years. Go talk to Jewish people. Jewish people reject them. Acts chapter 18. This is 20 years after Saul's experience on the road to Damascus. is going to be the founding of the church in Corinth. The church that we'll be studying for the next several weeks. Let's read from Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul. Luke changes his name right now. Calls him, instead of Saul, he calls him Paul. Left Athens and went to Corinth. There's our city. He found a Jew named Aquila, just like he'd always done. I'm gonna look for the Jewish person. And a native of Pontus recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded the Jews to leave Rome, the beginnings of persecution. And when he went to see them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the... Synagogue, every Sabbath, every Saturday, and tried to pursue, persuade Jews and Greeks. So these would be Greeks who were a part of the Jewish faith. They've been proselytized. They had to go through, if they're males, they had to go through circumcision. So he tried to pursue, persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, something happens. He finally has it. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. What? For six years, you've been going to Jewish people. But finally, this thing that Ananias told him he was supposed to do, he goes, from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So Saul leaves the synagogue where all the Jewish people are. He walks next door to this guy named Titius Justice and says, hey, you want to talk about Jesus? Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. 
And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you for I have many in this city who are my people in the city of Corinth. For the first time, there is this response among non-Jewish people saying, we believe, we, 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 we're ready to leave the old gods. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the beginning of the church in Corinth. And what we'll be looking at in the next several weeks is Paul's correspondence, trying to help this infantile church understand what Jesus did on the cross, understand the depth and the breadth of God's plan. And whether you're brand new in your faith or you're unresolved or a veteran, what Paul does in the book of 1 Corinthians will help solidify what we really believe. So I want to bring out three things about this man, Saul, who became Paul. Number one is this word, transformation. Transformation. How do you go from being the persecutor of the church to the planter of the church? There's a long ways between those two extremes, right? How do you go from being Saul, the ultimate Jewish man to being Paul, a guy who takes on a Greek name to reach Greek people. How's that happen? One of the things that I love about the apostle Paul is he understands transformation. Transformation wasn't just for Paul. Transformation is for everyone who says, I am a follower of Jesus. The cross didn't just happen. The resurrection just didn't happen so that we could have a, a change in eternal address. Oh, now we go to heaven. The cross happened so that human beings could be changed because here's the issue. We all wanna change, right? Um, if you don't have any New Year's resolutions or anything you'd like to alter or clean up in your life, you're out of touch with yourself, right? I've been to the gym four days this week and so has everybody else. It's packed, it's packed. Everybody wants to like, it's a, it's a new year, new me. But the problem is it's the old me in a new year. How do we change? So here's where religious communities get this all wrong. We think that change happens from the outside in. And we just, we, instead of understanding transformation, we like reduce Christianity into this thing called behavior modification. Oh, here's what, quit doing that. Stop, oh, don't say that word. Start acting this way. And before you know it, Christianity has been just dumbed down to like be a good moral person. Paul says this, no, no, no. What Jesus came to do on planet earth is to change human life forever. Because no one can change us from the outside in. Behavior modification is from the inside out. Jesus said, I'm gonna leave you my spirit who can then begin to alter and shift and make you new. And Paul is going to introduce us to this word. It, 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 without a doubt, it's gotta be my favorite Greek word in the New Testament. He's gonna say, part of what God does is this word metamorpho. Metamorpho. Uh, can you guess what word we translate that into English as? Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. You remember maybe eighth grade earth science, something like that. The caterpillar, squishy, green guts, a hundred legs, unattractive, 
goes into a cocoon, wraps itself in a cocoon, spends an indefinite amount of time into the cocoon, and eventually breaks out of the cocoon, and it doesn't look like a caterpillar anymore. It's a butterfly. And this is the word that Paul uses to describe what happened in his life from Saul to Paul, what happens in the followers of Jesus. We didn't just say yes to Jesus so we could go to heaven. He says, oh, no, no. There is a metamorphosis that is to happen in the life of all the followers of Jesus. That he changes us from the inside out, the things that we can't change, that there are new values, that there are new desires, that we have this radical alteration of our orientation and where we're headed. Paul says, I was called. God stepped in. He transformed me. I was the guy that wanted to destroy the church. Now I want to do is build churches. Transformation is for you. It's for me. Power of the good news of Jesus is that he can come into a city like Corinth. And we're going to read about this city. This city is insane. And he's going to transform a group of people in Corinth into something beautiful where they'll become fully human. What God had originally intended for them to be transformation. Here's the second word. Mission. Mission. Paul starts out his letter to the Corinthians by saying, I'm called to be an apostle by the will of God. I've been called by God, not just to be a tent maker. That's his trade. He, he probably takes animal skins and he takes a, an early form of canvas and does repair work and creates new tents for people. He says, that's what I do vocationally. Even in Corinth, that's how he's making a living. But that doesn't define him. He says, you know what's different about me? I am called by God to be an apostle, to be a difference maker. One of the most powerful things that any human being can ever experience is this, is a deep sense of calling. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're not, I want you to think through this because it's gonna change everything. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are not just a business person. You're not just a mom or a dad. You're not just a realtor. You're not just a student. You're not just a tradesperson. You're not just a medical professional. There's no such thing as just a, a follower of Jesus is invited in and called to be an emissary of God here on planet earth. You're called to sacrifice your life. You're called to love the unlovable. We are called to give hope when people have no hope. The follower of Jesus has this profound sense of calling. And you know how radically your life changes? If you wake up on a Monday morning and you're not just thinking, oh, I gotta go to school, gotta go to work. But if you wake up and you say, I'm called by the creator of the universe to love those who are hard to love. I'm called by my maker to speak hope and healing and life to the environments where I work. I am called not just to live in this neighborhood, but to love this neighborhood. I am called not just to earn a paycheck from my work, but I am called to bring peace and life and love and joy and liberty to this place of work. He's called. You are called. There's nobody in this room. There's nobody who's watching who is just a, you're called by God. Here's the third thing. Time alignment and preparation. Between 
Paul meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus and the establishment of the church of Corinth is two decades, 20 years. That is a long time. That's a long time to be in a cocoon, isn't it? Anybody want to get out of the cocoon? Like, he tries. He's like, I'll try Damascus. I'll try Jerusalem. Like, it's not working. He spends 14 years in a really tight cocoon. We don't even know what happens. And then eventually, what Ananias had spoken over him 20 years before is he's going to be the guy that's going to introduce non-Jewish people to the teachings of Jesus. He finally embraces it. He's so fed up with the rejection of going, first of all, to the synagogues and the Jewish people. He shakes, I love this, shook the dust off his clothes. Like, ah, I'm so done. And goes next door to this crazy Gentile guy and says, you know what? Like, you seem more open. And Corinth is going to be the first Gentile church that's ever planted. But it takes 20 years. God gives people visions. I love that. And I'm not just talking about visions. Sometimes we talk about calling. It's just people who want to be missionaries or people who want to be pastors. No, no, no. God calls everybody and he gives vision to people. But your vision might be this. Maybe you grew up in the most dysfunctional home imaginable and you have dreamt since you were a little kid that one day I want to have a family. (laughs) I want to have a family where people are loved and cared for and respected. I want to have a marriage that is God honoring and peaceful and not violent. That's a dream God gave you. Maybe you've experienced work in a workplace where it's like, it's just dog eat dog and it's competition. And you've dreamt one day, I want to be in a workplace. I want to lead a workplace that's more than profit. It's about people are treated with dignity and honor and we do the right things. And I can take the principles that Jesus taught me and put them into practice in my business environment. That's a beautiful dream. Here's the challenge. When we get a vision, we typically think the vision is given so that we can know the future, Right? Here's why visions are given. Here's why the vision was given to Saul 20 years before. So that he could do everything in his power to get ready when the time came. So whatever your vision is, there's time, alignment, there's preparation. Develop your character right now. Work hard, don't wait. And when God wants to bring everything together, coalesce it, be ready, be ready. So this whole idea of preparation, of calling, of time, alignment, I, I, I just have to share two stories with you. One, there is a large group of people who have been praying for unreached people groups in our world. A missions prayer that goes on every week. They, they're diligent. Something I prayed for for my whole life. God, would you raise up courageous people who would go to other parts of the world, places where people have no idea who Jesus is or what he's done. there are five young people at this church who are currently quitting their jobs, raising support, and they are ready to move overseas. We won't even be able to talk about it much because they're going to go to a place of the world where if, if their faith was known, if their intentions were known, their lives would be in danger. Five people, you know what that is? That's God answering all these prayers. It's been years and years and years. And they've got five more people who are saying, hey, give us a year and we'll join you. What in the world? See, God's still doing the same thing. I'll give you another example. 28 years ago, I drove through Butte, Montana for the first time in my life. And you guys are chuckling already. 
and I fell in love with it. I'm like, great city with a toxic pit. I mean, I don't know. I, we were just coming back. My parents had their 50th wedding anniversary and we celebrated at Whitefish and we're driving back through and like, I have to stop the car in Butte because for 28 years, I've been praying for that city. Man, the first time I drove through, I felt like God said, one day I want you to play a part in, in having this God-honoring, beautiful church here in Butte. It's gonna change this community and give hope and life to people. And I've been, I, every time I go through Butte, I have to stop and I drive around. I'm like, God, is it time yet? And I've invited six different people to come out and go to Butte. I'll, I'll say like, I got your hotel. I want you to spend a weekend in Butte. And I'm just praying, God, give them a heart for Butte. And they just want to stay there. And they'll be our church planners. And we'll all get behind them. All six of these couples have said same thing. Um, would it be okay if we went to Bozeman instead? <laughs> no! No, we need somebody for Butte, right? I'm not going to give up. Somebody right now, like you're feeling conviction to go to Butte, look down right now because I'm going to make eye contact with you and you're going. Some guy after last service sent me a, like a little note. He goes, you know that Butte has the most days under 32 degrees of any city in the United States. And I said, so you want to go to Butte? Like, I'm looking... Just, this is the process of God. He's still doing the same things and he's transforming and he's preparing somebody right now to go to Butte one day, to go overseas, to enter into the education system, to enter into your office, bring the kingdom of God. Because God takes Saul's and makes them Paul's. God takes persecutors and make some planners. That's the God we serve, the God who transforms. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.